This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hi, and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I'm delighted that you're here. I hope to reach with self-work people who are very interested in psychological and emotional issues, perhaps already in therapy, or to those of you who've been just diagnosed with depression or anxiety and are looking for answers, or perhaps even to those of you who wouldn't darken the door of a therapist's office, as I frequently say, but would be just interested enough and curious enough to want to listen in. So welcome to all of you. Or as I had one listener write in and tell me, you also ought to include a group that says they can't afford therapy, so they listen to a therapy podcast. A lot of you know that I've just written a new book, Perfectly Hidden Depression, that came out in November, and I'm recording this the first weekend of December and wanted to let you know that it is on sale at Amazon for their Cyber Monday prices, so you might want to go over there and see, of course, if you're listening to this far later then that might not be the case. But the price has been substantially lowered. And if you do get it, please review it for me. I also want to thank some recent podcast hosts who've had me on, Lisa Davis of Naturally Savvy and Tom Singer of Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. It's wonderful to get to talk about the book, and I'm so appreciative. There are almost 12,000 of you that have downloaded the actual Perfectly Hidden Depression episode So I know you're out there, and I hope that the book helps. Now let's get on to the subject of the podcast. And today we're talking about apathy, living parallel lives. I see so many people who are living out their partnerships or marriages, passing like ships in the night, to use a very old phrase. And it's a very lonely existence. That is, it's lonely when and if you even allow yourself to feel the emptiness between the two of you. You may be actually very good at avoiding that reality. Most of these couples are conflict avoidant, and the distance that they feel between them is played out covertly, not openly, meaning it's under the surface. We'll touch on this kind of passivity and what it may look like. But as you know, I like to talk about what you can do about it. So we'll talk about some tangible ways to begin to feel more partnered, more engaged. But please know from the beginning that first and foremost, you have to take the time to connect. And that will mean that something else has to give, like work or hobbies or friends or your mom or your kids. But action is called for. The pain of living parallel lives can actually seem very bearable because there's little to no arguing. Bills are being paid, you both attend the work holiday party, but there's no real partnership. Our listener email for today is from someone who has a compulsion to carry a defensive weapon that could end endangering her job if she continues carrying it, and she asks what she can do about it. Now again, if you have had violence in your family, this may be triggering for you, so please be careful. So today we're talking about apathy and living parallel lives. As always, my message today is what you can do about it.
often and actually very sadly, when people come into therapy, they've waited until someone has one foot out the door or one of them has had an affair, whether it's sexual or emotional, or after so many bitter arguments have occurred that all they're doing now is trying to prove themselves right all the time. But there are some couples who enter therapy much more quietly. Often they request to come in one at a time, saying perhaps there are just some things I can't say in front of him or her, which of course is the problem. But they're polite. They don't touch or reach out to one another. They answer my questions fairly easily. I usually say to them, well, I would rather you come in together first. And when they do, they describe having a great time together when they go on trips with their friends, their kids are doing well, and they recognize that the other one is doing their fair share of the parenting. Their finances could be a little rocky or just fine, but often they keep their money separate and have a joint account where the bills are paid. When I ask them how they met, they smile and usually tell me a somewhat similar sweet story. When asked if they love one another, they say yes. When asked why they're in therapy, often they say they don't know, or they don't communicate, or one or both of them realizes that something's missing, something's not right. We act like our friends, and we seem happy to others, and we're not really unhappy, but something's wrong. That's what I hear. When asked what their last argument was about, they can't remember, or they had the same argument over and over and over and never reach a compromise or resolution, and then it sort of fades away. Maybe they both walk away with resentment, and maybe they even realize that that resentment has caused them to build huge walls between them. Or perhaps the worst situation is when I hear, you know, we don't really argue. And when we do, it can be pretty bad, but it's very rare. Most of the time, the only time we really talk is when we're talking about the kids. My heart sinks when I hear that. When asked when was the last time they went anywhere together alone, the answer is that they haven't, not in a very long time. When asked about sex, maybe they say it can be pretty good, but it's more likely that it isn't, it doesn't happen much, or they even sleep in separate rooms. They'll say, he snores, or one of the kids is always coming into the bed, or she travels so much we both just got used to sleeping by ourselves, or he falls asleep on the couch. So I may ask again about how they show each other that they love one another, and they look at me and go, loving each other isn't the issue. They're right. Love isn't the issue. Apathy is the issue. They're living their lives in parallel, not sharing much of anything, living side by side, mostly independent. So they do realize, perhaps, is that what they have created has led to a relationship where they're not really certain of their importance to the other. They check off the boxes of things to do, responsibilities, expectations, but there is very little to no true intimacy. Let's talk for a minute about how apathy is different than anhedonia, which is a symptom of depression. They are very similar, and depression, whether it's one or both of them, could be at the bottom of what's going on in this distancing between these two people. But there's a distinction that may be subtle, but I think is important. Anhedonia, or not enjoying things that were once enjoyable, is a major symptom of depression, but it's surrounded by other symptoms of depression, like hopelessness or fatigue or mind fog or sleeping too much. Apathy can stand alone especially apathy within a relationship. Two people may have adopted a very apathetic or non-engaged stance toward their marriage, 
and not even realize it's much of a problem. The rest of their lives are going quite well, but they've lost their sense of engagement with one another again. They don't have the desire to fight because they just don't care much anymore. There's just no fight left. They've given up. I looked up what other people had to say about apathy, and there's an article in Psychology Today from a Dr. Leon Seltzer, and I'm going to quote him. If there's an overarching cause for apathy, it's probably pessimism. And that self-defeating attitude could derive either from early childhood programming, which led you to believe that no matter how conscientiously you applied yourself, you still couldn't succeed. Or more commonly, it's caused by a series of events in your present life that left you feeling you simply couldn't win for losing. How many times have I heard that? I can't win for losing. For some reason, I think of the famous last scene of the original Gone with the Wind, where Rhett Butler, who spent years trying to get Scarlett O'Hara to admit her passion for him, she finally realized she had it, but it was too late for him. And Scarlett said, but Rhett, what will I do? And his retort was, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. That was apathy, or at least it seemed to be at the moment. I think they created a whole nother movie and book to answer that question. Was he really gone. But whether the apathy comes from the fact that you just were never that engaged with one another and you don't really know how to be, you don't have the skills to be, or whether you fought and tried and struggled and just given up. In many ways, I have more hope for the couple who's still screaming at each other. Their misery can act as a motivation to change. They know they're hurting the kids and they can see it, or at least Often they can. But the apathetic couple, this is the couple that keeps coming and coming to therapy, hoping for change, but can't seem to remember what we talked about in the last session. Or I give them an assignment, and they do it, but they don't talk to each other about it. Perhaps they'd even gone a week or more without talking to one another at all. Maybe we'd practiced communication techniques in session, and we went over it, and I supported them trying it, and they just couldn't find the time. They're not supporting the change they see in each other that I've suggested that they try. Maybe they're not even risking any new behavior or choice. It's hard to fight their apathy. What I used to do as a younger therapist is that I would start working even harder to try to get these two people to engage, to participate. And I realized I couldn't work harder than the people I see in therapy. It just doesn't work. I can't want the change more than they want it. What sometimes can be very sad and poignant is that I actually see these two people in front of me as I help them learn how to really listen using the eye-to-eye technique that I've talked about in other episodes. And actually, I'll have that episode for you in the show notes if that would be helpful because it's a great technique. So I teach them how to do that. I watch them both take some risks, reveal an emotion, try to understand something differently. But it's as if without the presence of a therapist, without the safety of the therapeutic situation, their fear is overwhelming. The rut of the habit they're in is too deep. It's easier to fall back into the familiar. Even if I tell them that if they keep disregarding the health of their relationship, They're doomed for more emptiness. Sometimes they just look at me like, well, we don't want that. But they can't seem to allow that fear to motivate them. 
we've talked about motivation for change and actual emotional paralysis in some recent episodes. In fact, the emotional paralysis one was just last week. So sometimes that's at work. But when it's a couple, what's interesting is that they can enable one another to stay paralyzed because they're waiting for the other one to make the change first. And when that doesn't happen, the distance between them just grows larger. Here they are putting time and money and whatever energy they can muster into therapy, and it's quote-unquote not working. And what I hate to see is this. The couple gets divorced, and they don't really even know why. We could just never get on the same page. Or it just never seemed like I could get to him. Or she seemed so walled off. There was too much water under the bridge. And sometimes there is. I would never try to say that divorce is sometimes not the best thing that this kind of couple can do. And sometimes they can even divorce amicably because they're not fighting. And sometimes they can sit down and make those decisions even more easily than they thought which is a clue, of course. And maybe that's the best solution. For those of you who've listened for a while, you know that I've been divorced, and sometimes divorce is the best solution. There's no doubt about it. But when an apathetic couple stays together, this kind of pain never goes away and actually gets worse. They gave up fighting a long time ago. They may bicker, but it's a very lonely withdrawal. You know, people who are in these kinds of relationships may very well have grown up in families where there was violence or chaos or a highly controlling or alcoholic parent. So they sought a relationship that was calmer, more sedate. And they had learned in the families where they grew up that it was much safer to stay invisible. And that can be what they're playing out with one another. Sometimes if they see that pattern, it can be very helpful. So I said from the beginning we were going to talk about what you can do about it. The best thing that I've tried so far is to give this very specific assignment so that they can confront their habit of making choices without the input or help from the other. Again, what we talked about, that they're very independent. So here's the assignment. I'll ask them to have a conversation on Friday night or Saturday morning and ask one another, What would you like to accomplish this weekend that I can help make happen? Both of them get to ask the question, and then both of them help their partner with something. You can hear that that simple question assumes a partnership. I can help you make something happen that you want to happen. Let's say one person says, I really need to take a nap this weekend. So the other one takes the kids somewhere. Or one person wants to go to the gym. Then arrangements are made together for that to happen. It can feel very pragmatic, or one of them can say, I really want to take a walk with you. Let's make that happen together. Hopefully what begins to happen is that there's this sense of, I can help you, and you can help me, and we have each other's backs. It's what I call interdependence. I get to do something important to me because you help me get it done, and vice versa. It's an opportunity for trust to be created. And then, of course, what we hopefully do is move on from the weekend and get them to talk more to each other about how they can be helpful to one another. Maybe reaching compromises. You may want to help your partner reach some goal they have, but really, the two of you need to compromise about it. When you compromise, you are showing that you care. And of course, if you get that back, 
you're receiving the same message that you're cared about. Dr. Seltzer, again from Psychology Today, states later in his article that apathy can only be confronted by deciding and making a strong commitment to change, to caring again, to risking, to not settling for what is familiar. And that's what people who are living parallel lives in relationship need to do as well. They need to reach out and say, I need you in my life. I want you in my life. I can help you with yours, and you can help me with mine. Because we both care, and that's how we can begin to remember how to show that we care. The listener email today is a more unusual one, and again, I want to warn anyone who has a history of violence in their family or has any kind of suspiciousness or even generalized anxiety about what's going on in the world. Remember, this woman is reaching out for help. But if it triggers you, then please take care of yourself. She writes, Your podcast has helped me quite a lot during a very difficult time in my life. I hope you can give me advice on an ongoing obsession I have with carrying a knife. I've had family therapy before, so I know that this obsession comes from my past abuse as a child. When I was young, I was molested by an uncle. So what I deduced is that it brings me comfort to always have a knife with me. It's my safety blanket. But lately I've realized that it could get me in trouble. For example, at work where they might figure out I'm carrying a deadly weapon. Although I've never, ever hurt anyone or would think about stabbing someone because I would never do that. But it could cause unwanted complications. I know I've been holding on to this for so long and I need to let it go, but I just can't. Please help me with this obsession. So here's my answer. Hello and thank you for your kind words. I've had many adult patients tell me they slept with a knife as a child because there was so much chaos and insecurity in their lives at home. They had no one to protect them. So they'd protect themselves. Your own therapy has shown you that. I'm so sorry that you were abused as a child, but it seems like this need to feel safe continues, and you don't describe any ongoing abuse, so we can call it a compulsion, which is a behavior that you feel compelled to do. So good treatment for compulsions or obsessions is often a behavioral one, meaning you want to start changing the actual behavior because you have insight into the fact that it's not rational. You've got to fight off this sense of that it's protecting you and realize you are safe now. So part of that is in your thinking. So first I would develop a mantra to tell yourself you're safe. Some simple words to say, I'm safe, I'm an adult, I'm no longer that child. So there's the mental cognitive part of it. But let's now talk about the behavioral part of it. First, you leave the knife at home literally for five minutes. You drive around the block or walk around the block. Then go back to your house and get it. Do this over and over until you're up to an hour or more of time away from that weapon. And use your mantra. So you're changing your behavior and you're actually replacing your thoughts with more positive, rational ones. You see what you come up with that will help and you build your tolerance for being away from it. Keep it in the glove compartment of your car. Anything to create more and more distance, which of course will be anxiety-provoking at first. 
but also something that requires you to change your relationship with that anxiety because right now you're trying to quell the anxiety by having the knife. Instead, you can try to quell the anxiety by saying to yourself, I am safe, I'm an adult, I'm no longer that child. You can look around and see things that make you feel safe in your environment. There are other tangible things that can help. Perhaps you can take a picture of it, and even looking at the picture will help. Keep something with you that symbolizes your own power for you or the love that others have for you, something else that would bring you comfort. Maybe take even defense training of some kind. I've done hypnosis with people with this kind of compulsion, and it's been effective for some. What may be necessary, however, is for you to do trauma work not just family therapy, and I'd recommend finding someone who's certified in EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy. It can be highly effective for trauma and may likely give you more clarity and emotional freedom from the trauma itself, as well as why you still feel the compulsion to carry. Good luck to you. And I'm glad you're a listener and you're in the group. Yeah, she told me she was in the Facebook closed group. I hope this makes sense to you. Because what you're basically doing is setting up both a cognitive structure for her, a mental structure, and a behavioral structure. You want to combat it or confront it at both ends. Then positively reward yourself for changing because it's hard to do when you have those kinds of childhood beliefs. I want to thank you so much for being here today at Self Work. I've gotten some great reviews on iTunes this month. One was from Tom Singer, who I've already said I was on his podcast earlier. He and I actually talked about perfectly hidden depression many years ago now, several years ago. And he says that I helped him deal with some personal issues, which is very nice. Someone else says listening is almost like having had a therapy session. That's great. I like her solution-oriented approach. That's what I try to offer. And of course, thank you for leaving these. That's really helpful. Both these reviews on iTunes and the reviews on Amazon are the way you can thank me for providing what I can provide and what I know to you. You can get in touch with me at drmargaretrutherford.com. That's my website, and you can contact me there. Email me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Pinterest. And I'd love to have you there. I do have a Facebook closed group at facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. And I'm getting ready on December the 8th to do a Facebook Live on Perfectly Hidden Depression on that page. So if you'd like to join in, it's going to be December the 8th at 7 o'clock Central Standard Time. And I'd love to have you there. But you have to join the group first, facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. Now that the book is published, I'm going to be doing more Facebook Lives on my own Facebook page. So please go there, too. It's just facebook.com slash Dr. Margaret Rutherford. Thanks for being a part of the Self Work Podcast. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.